Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join in, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about cancer biology and therapeutics with Dr. Ranjit Bindra. Dr. Bindra is Assistant Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Pathology. And here's Dr. Susan Higgins. So I thought we would talk about um, radiation oncologists and how they play a role in the whole management team that takes care of brain tumors at our institution. Great. I'm happy to do that. So um, radiation oncology uh, here at Yale is really part of a multidisciplinary team. Uh, we work with uh, surgeons and medical oncologists, and we all sort of uh, have our own um, part of the puzzle that we contribute to. Um, we deliver focused radiation, which typically is given over a period of four to six weeks or so. And um, after that, we'll, we'll typically hand off our treatment uh, to our medical oncologists, who will then give chemo therapy for often a period of six to 12 months. All of this is pretty much uh, starts with a, a surgical resection, which is done by our neurosurgeon on the team. And then after you have this, you know, initial surgical uh, procedure, the whole team gets together at a thing called tumor board. I think a lot of patients, they come to us and, you know, they don't realize that after their initial meeting, let's say with you, there are a whole group of doctors that come up with a game plan. And, you know, as, as a multi multidisciplinary team uh, sort of member in GYN oncology, I think uh, CNS tumors like brain tumors are one of the most important tumors. To get it right the first time, you have to have a game plan. Maybe you could talk about the game plan process in tumor board. Uh, yeah, sure, be happy to. So that's actually probably one of the most exciting uh, parts of the process, and I think one of the strengths of a institution like Yale and that we get really a large group of people together every week, and we talk about the cases that are um, really that have just the new diagnoses, the cases that might be coming up, the cases that unfortunately have a, a recurrence or need additional treatment. Treatment. And um, what's really nice about that is, you know, just like all walks of life, you know, getting a bunch of people into a room and just looking at all the data all at once and kind of thinking about things. And, and what, you know, we often start this off with um, a case presentation. The, the resident that's on the service who's a doctor in training will present a particular case. Uh, we'll then have the radiologist come and present uh, the imaging findings and we'll all look at those imaging findings together and come up with our interpretation. And then immediately after, we have a pathologist who comes on board. And, and, and actually looks at the, the actual microscopic slides and looks at the tissue specimens and says, well, this is the diagnosis that, that I think it is. Um, and then uh, the consultants, such as the radiation oncologists and the medical oncologists, or technically the neuro-oncologists, um, we all then come together with the surgeon and we discuss, well, you know, what's the most optimal treatment regimen um, that we should give for this particular patient? And really recognizing that, you know, there, there's never always the, per the, the exact answer that you pull out of a book. It often comes from a consensus um, and, and that's what's great that uh, that we have at a, at a place like Yale. Yeah, and I, I really like your point about the fact that it's there really is no replacement for everyone being in one place 
at one time in the process of discussing the case with the pathologist. You have the screen in front of you. You can ask them specific questions, and you really get the discussion plus the help of all these other specialists that are part of the team, and I don't even know that sometimes people know that they're, they're part of the team, but uh, it's, it's a real group effort. Um, and in talking about, just wanted to go a, a little bit into this um, tumor board issue again uh, in a little more detail because there are two types of tumor board now for the um, patients with brain tumors. There's uh, one tumor board where I understand you discuss sort of the primary tumors, but now there's a whole separate tumor board for a metastatic disease. Maybe you could tell us about that. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny. I, I have this, this a similar conversation with my, my patients in clinic quite often where they say, well, you know, um, you know, who do you have to talk to now? And I say, well, we, you know, we have a, we actually have a separate tumor board just to talk about this specific part of the, the treatment plan. And a lot of people are surprised to hear how specialized medicine has become. And the analogy, you know, for folks that are listening that might not have a medical background is, you know, if you need to see a lawyer, um, you know, there's, there's real estate lawyers, there's tax lawyers, there's property lawyers, everything's become so specialized. And, and just, uh, just in that manner, cancer care has become pretty specialized. And so even within the brain, we have tumors that arise really from the tissues within the brain or tumors that arise from other sites outside of the brain. And, and those we call metastases or metastatic tumors. And, and, and because there's such specific treatment regimens that we um, give for those two types of tumors, we actually have an entirely different tumor board where we just talk about the management of metastatic disease. And I think that this area of treating metastatic disease is really kind of a new frontier in the sense that we have so many things available that weren't available before. Number two, we have a tremendous impact because now a lot of people have their what we call extracranial or the disease outside of the head well controlled and one of their main symptoms may come from the disease that's that's sort of you know, hiding in the brain. And one of the tools we have uh, that is really uh, exciting and, and great from a technical standpoint is the gamma knife. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the gamma knife because we actually have the only gamma knife in, in this state and you have a huge program. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to. I, I think that, that, you know, to start, one of the most interesting things about this is we're now in an era where when a patient presents with metastatic disease in the brain, it's completely different in terms of what we can do. We, we can basically say that in a large number of these cases, we can successfully address the disease in the brain. And we often say, well, you know, it's up to your medical oncologist to take care of the rest of the body because, believe it or not, if you have five or six small metastases in the brain, uh, we can take care of that. And a lot of that is largely due to technologies like the Gamma Knife um, radiosurgery instrument that we have here at Yale, um, led by Dr. Veronica Chang, who's been doing this for um, well over 10, almost 15 years now. And um, we've really been at the forefront of pioneering this, this concept of being very aggressive in terms of our treatment of metastatic disease in the brain. And, and we've now shown that we can um, easily control, you know, five or six tumors that appear. And uh, many years later, they two or three might appear again, and, and we're able to treat all of those. And the, and the important distinction that is that in the past, we would simply just radiate the entire brain. And, and a lot of centers, a lot of smaller centers that don't have this instrument will, will rely on this backup um, approach where you simply just radiate the entire brain and all the normal tissue um, that's there. So this is a, this is a big strength to, at our institution, um, and we're very excited to have it. So when people hear the word gamma knife, I think it, it 
I would have to say I think people are initially kind of you know pull back and say, well, what what the heck is that? It sounds intimidating. Um, but I was part of the Gamma Knife team for a while, and it was really uh, refreshing to see how well people tolerate it. And um, maybe you could tell us what happens from the day a person sees you in consultation to the point where they actually get to the Gamma Knife Center, and uh, uh, how do they manage or how do they uh, tolerate that type of treatment? Sure. So uh, typically we see these patients, um, they're referred from the medical oncologist and, you know, uh, maybe one or two spots show up in the brain and uh, they come to our clinic and one of uh, three or four radiation oncologists will see them. We'll do a consultation and, and what's really great about our program is our neurosurgeon, uh, our neurosurgery team um, actually is, is pretty involved from the beginning in terms of um, seeing these patients at the same time as us. And this has actually been quite um, quite a good experience for patients because really to, to see the radiation oncologist and the neurosurgeon sitting there in a consultation room and sort of walking you through the procedure uh, and, and sort of getting them ready for um, the actual day of the gamma knife. So the gamma knife um, actual procedure, we, we, we typically say it's an all-day uh, event for the patient. Um, we Patients will typically come in around 7 or 8 a.m., and uh, we, we uh, check them in, and we give them some medicine to relax them. And our neurosurgeon then uh, affixes a head frame, um, which is probably the, the, the hardest part of the procedure, but really only a few minutes of just um, affixing a rigid head frame that allows us to direct our radiation beams um, to very, very high precision. And we're talking about less than a millimeter, as you know, a millimeter accuracy. Um, we then put that head frame on and the patient um, has an MRI of the brain. So we get a high resolution image of the patient's uh, tumors, where they are, where they're located. Um, the patient then comes downstairs and we uh, work with a physicist side by side and we, we delineate all the areas that are of concern. Um, and then we bring the patient into uh, the gamma knife instrument, treat them. And in many cases, if it's only two or three lesions, we can treat the patient in about 20 or 30 minutes, um, take the head frame off and we send them home. Uh, I have a good, you know, great story of a patient that called me literally the next day from the golf course telling me that he felt really, really good. And I think that highlights how things have really changed and how we can really efficiently and effectively treat these tumors. Yeah, it, uh, that also impressed me when I'd see people, you know, the frame uh, is, is an open frame and I'd see people sitting there drinking orange juice, waiting for their treatment. And as you said, they go home and, and basically very few side effects from this treatment. So a huge change from when we were all doing whole brain with people losing their hair and having lots of long-term and, and short-term uh, side effects. I think we've really turned a corner in how we manage you know, CNS disease. Yeah, and, and I think that, uh, you know, we've really at Yale been pushing the envelope, and I, I think it's partly from this program that has been built like folks like Dr. Chang and uh, having one of the only gamma knives in the state and really uh, doing about three to 400 cases a year, which I think there's something to be said about expertise and being really at that forefront. So it's been very exciting. And then once they go through the procedure, um, they they get, you know, it's not like we just send them off into the wilderness. We have a whole process of following people, and we have excellent uh colleagues in imaging that help us to kind of make sure that our job is not, if it's not done, that we, we kind of finish up with that. And sometimes people have additional lesions, as you said. Um, maybe you could just talk about the follow-up and, and how we kind of keep people in our uh, in, within our mm -hmm. grasp and get them the imaging that they need as time goes on. And that, uh, that I'd be happy to. That's that's actually the, the great part about the METS tumor board, because not only do we talk about patients that are on deck for treatment, but we look at responses. And, you know, we're really blessed to have some radiology 
psychologists, uh, Frank Minja and colleagues who, who really have taken an interest in trying to interpret a lot of these imaging findings. Because we now have technology that allows us to, to not just look at the spot that we see, and, but actually look at the metabolic features within that spot just from an image that we see of the patient's brain. And so because of that tumor board, we're able to continuously monitor patients. And, and one of the other neat things about the Gamma Knife uh, program is we're able to take new follow-up scans and merge them back into the, pre the previous treatment plan. So when we devise that treatment plan the day of, we can then merge those. And we naturally look exactly where a new spot may be. Well, sometimes we find that it's actually in the same spot. And we realize that this could just be a treatment change and we're just going to ride out the storm and it may resolve on its own. And in many cases it does. So. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that these are really highly specialized imaging techniques. It's just not specialized treatment, but the the team that does the imaging and works with us really help us to make our treatment more effective and, and less morbid. And again, being you know a large center with large volume and a big imaging department where they are subspecialized has really helped us, and I, I think they've been a, a big part of the team. So it's good to hear that you guys are still you know kind of pushing the forefront even with the imaging. Um, and, you know, one of the things that was also interesting is the gamma knife is also used to treat some quote-unquote benign disease, but with really great effects. One of the things I think about is trigeminal neuralgia, and uh, maybe you could give us an update on where you're at with some of those disease processes. Yeah, so we, we have a very, very busy uh, benign disease program on the gamma knife. Uh, we actually treat a lot of trigeminal neuralgias. Um, a lot of people fly in from all over New England, and uh, one of the great things that we have here is we have some functional neurosurgeons who um, have trained at large-volume institutions have now come here and have um, really pushed, again, pushed the envelope on what we can do with non-tumor uh, diseases and non-tumor issues. Um, we have uh, functional neurosurgery with, again, combined with advanced imaging, and we're able to not only treat things like trigeminal neuralgia, which is a benign disease that affects the nerves uh, in the base of the skull, but we can actually retreat patients who fail. Um, so we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of sort of flexibility and a lot of um, uh, new areas that we're we're constantly moving uh, towards. Yeah, and I remember it was really gratifying because when I treated people with trigeminal neuralgia, getting them off of the meds that they were on and getting their functional sort of quality of life in order meant a huge, huge amount to them. So I, I, I'm glad to hear that we're still continuing that. Well, um, we're about to take a break for a medical minute. Um, please stand by and uh, tune in to learn more about our Cancer Biology and Therapeutics program with Dr. Ranjit Bindra. We'll be back to talk about some specific research interests and clinical trials. The American Cancer Society estimates that there will be 75,000 new cases of melanoma in the U.S. this year, with over 1,000 of these patients living in Connecticut. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. Early detection is the key, and when detected early, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence, SPORE, in Skin Cancer Grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Susan Higgins, and I'm here tonight with my guest, Dr. Ranjit Bindra, and we're talking about cancer biology and therapeutics and the treatment of central nervous system tumors. Um, uh, so, Dr. Bindra, one of the things that's unique about uh, your situation is that you're an MD, PhD, and you not only have the clinical expertise, but you're able to really bridge this gap between the science and the treatment with what we use uh, the term bench to bedside kind of uh, projects. Maybe you could talk a little bit about you know how you're bridging that gap between the clinical and the science with, with your lab, with your work in the lab. Sure, be happy to do that. So um, my laboratory is predominantly focused on small molecule screening for novel agents that we can combine with um, radiation and conventional chemotherapies. Um, so what we do is we design um, novel assays or ways to screen large compound libraries or so large collections of drugs. And we look for specific drugs that when we give them with radiation and pre predominantly for brain tumors, adult and pediatric brain tumors, um, that they're able to sensitize the effect of the radiation or the chemotherapy that's given with it. So in other words, you're affecting what we call sort of the therapeutic ratio, increasing the the tumors, the number of tumor cells that are killed relative to the number of normal cells that may be damaged. Exactly. And I think that, that that's the key uh, thing that you mentioned is that therapeutic index. What we what we tell a lot of people are in training is that we now have instruments like we talked about in the first half, uh, like the gamma knife, where we can deliver enormous doses of radiation. We can give very high doses of chemotherapy. Um, yet a lot of these brain tumors still recur. They recur at the same site that we treated. And so we need to find ways to specifically target get those tumor cells uh, without collateral damage to the normal tissue. A lot of that is now changing, and that's why it's so exciting to be uh, in molecular biology and cancer research, because we now understand the, the molecular features of the tumor so that we can now target them more effectively. And you are probably involved in some clinical trials of, of these types of drugs. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the trials that you're involved in. Sure. So one of our first screens we did was for uh, looking for drugs that block uh, DNA repair. And so we were looking at um, DNA repair inhibitors specifically that work against uh, a primary brain tumor called glioblastoma. Uh, we performed that screen. This was actually work that I had started during my postdoctoral work uh, in New York and brought over to here in my own laboratory at Yale. Um, and we were very lucky because we found actually a drug that was previously FDA approved. Um, it was approved for hypertension. And uh, one of the first things we were able to do was look into whether we could take that drug since it had been given to patients for many years before, use it with radiation as a sensitizer for radiation. Um, and long story short is after, you know, about a year or two of trying to pull a lot of different um, things together to make this work, we were able to start a clinical trial, a phase one trial, uh, which has been open for about a year. And so let's just go through that process. So a patient comes to you and you know, you have this uh, ability to offer them the trial, um, but there's a process that happens, right? When they come to you um, in terms of consent and, and kind of you have to have a long discussion about these things and kind of educate the patient, right? Yep. It's, uh, you know, the process of, uh, of enrolling in a clinical trial is, is I, what I've noticed is very scary. It's very scary for a patient to come in and say, well, 
you know, you've got this novel drug and, you know, what's in it for you, I've often heard. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of fear that a clinical trial is just, you know, working maybe for a, a pharmaceutical company and maybe we have a financial interest. And, and one of the great things about Yale and, and many other top institutions like our place is we, we have a lot of these trials that are really homegrown science. They're based on um, discoveries from our own laboratories uh, that are then funded by the institution um, to test inpatients. And so we spend a lot of time discussing with patients, trying to walk them through that what you know what we're trying to do is further um, our knowledge of the disease and to develop new therapeutics, and um, and and the good news we always tell patients is that we have so many um, sort of complex regulatory mechanisms that are all in place to protect the patient, and I think that's that's one thing that's always put patients at comfort that one of the first things that our our top priority is patient safety and making sure that we're not hurting anyone while still having a good chance of helping people. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point because um, ha- uh, being involved in clinical trials myself, running a drug trial, um, it really opens your eyes to all of the things that happen before the trial ever gets to um, to be in, sort of enacted in the clinic. There's a whole board, uh, Institutional Review Board, Human in- Investigation Committee, that's really looking, you know, the part of their task is uh, safety, making sure the drug is administered safely, but also before the trial ever starts, just really thinking about what's in it for the patient and is it an ethical trial. And I, I think that's important. Um, as radiation oncologists, we end up doing a lot of educating, but especially when it comes to trials. Yep, totally agree. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, being an NCI-designated cancer institute, we're very, very, very fortunate to be able to offer these things to people. But one of the big, I think, uh, responsibilities for the physician is, is really uh doing the consent appropriately and and getting the patient to understand really what we're doing and, and why and especially in CNS tumors right because it's it's scary we're dealing with brain tumors exactly we, we um you know we we exactly spend a lot of time on that in the clinic and trying to say that um, one of the advantages of, of a place like Yale and uh, is that that we're just going to offer what we think is best for the patient. So um, I spend a lot of time telling patients that you know I don't have a vested interest um, really to, to have you do anything but what I think will help you um, within the, within a reasonable safety margin. And and we have many examples where we've really pushed the envelope both on trial and, and what we call off protocol. It's it's something that I, in the last few years I've noticed with with the talent pool of clinical clinician investigators here at Yale um, that we're constantly pushing the envelope. We're, we're, we have what we call uh, personal exemptions where we, we enroll a single patient for an off-label indication for a drug that's FDA approved for something else. Um, and it's those types of things that um, are really exciting to see happening at Yale. And, and really exciting to offer because many patients, they've you know sort of run out of some of the standard therapy options, what we would think of as frontline treatment or even second-line treatment. And, and it's important for them to know when they're searching for additional therapies that these things are available at our institution. Yep, and, and that's actually one thing I always tell patients is, you know, when I was in medical school, I was a Yale medical student back in the early 2000s. I think you were my attending, <laughs> as you may recall. And uh, I remember back then when people had brain tumors, we had basically a plan A. And if plan A worked, there was really nothing else. And what's really exciting now is we have a plan B, we have a plan C, we have a plan D, and we can give you a lot of those plans at Yale. And, it, and it's very exciting to finally be able to offer um, patients other therapies um, that weren't available before. So um, I'm going back to the bench-to-bedside concept now, which is before the trial comes to the clinic, 
there's actually a whole process of getting that drug examined in a usually often an animal model um, and that's again years before we ever get to the point where we bring it into the clinic maybe you could just talk about sort of the um, some of the facilities we have and the ability to do these animal model studies. Yeah, so I think um, one of the most exciting things about being involved in translational research right now is it used to be what you could call working in silos. You used to have sort of the what you call the ivory tower academics sort of work in a way a very basic science setting and you'd have the pharmaceutical companies in another uh, sort of corner of the room and, and seldom would you see them talk to each other and, and now what we're seeing happening happening is that academic institutions are now actually able to come up with ideas, uh, run drug screens, and then actually test those drug, the, the hits from those screens in animals a, within the academic institution, and then actually develop them towards phase one clinical trials. To that end, we have uh, we have a drug screening facility here that's really, you know, nearly second to none. Uh, part of that is because as pharmaceutical industries, the landscape has changed. Uh, we have companies like Pfizer uh, just down the street in Groton, and as they've down Downsize, we've we've benefited from getting a lot of that talent, and they now work at Yale, and um, they have expertise in drug screening, and and it's so lucky for us because now we get to work with these folks who are you know top of the top for for drug screening in an academic setting. Yeah, and it's really become a great collaborative process, sort of private sector, academic. It's it's a win-win, I think, in a lot of ways. And now we have the the West Campus, as we call it. And, and that's been a huge resource. I don't think a lot of people know about that, but that's been incorporated into our, you know, sort of greater scheme of research. And maybe you could just talk about a little bit about what happens over there. Yeah. So the West Campus is sort of like almost a, another half of Yale now. I think um, having, again, having been here in medical school and even as an undergrad in the mid-90s, you know, things have changed here. Um, really, when you walk over there, you realize that there's a sense of just something exciting. We, we're able to sequence entire genomes. Um, for really under $1,000. We we can get the entire genomic profile of a tumor, and we can present the results of that at Tumor Board, and we do. Um, we actually have a Tumor Board on Mondays where uh, called Precision Medicine Tumor Board, and we just talk about the mutations that were sequenced over at the West Campus. And so what's really exciting is we have this entire side of Yale of translational science, and, and a lot of it's brewing over at the West Campus, and it's, it's really exciting to see it grow. And this is really this concept that we've really been trying to develop of personalized medicine. Now, you know, I think the era is here, and uh, we have these gigantic resources that are available to the patients to give them really not just tumor-specific but patient-specific treatment. And it's it's really exciting to hear about the Precision uh, Tumor Board. Maybe you could talk about how exactly you're you're targeting things with that information you get from the people on West Campus. Yeah, so so I'll give you an example of you know we have uh, I do a lot of pediatric brain tumors and so we've had uh, patients that come you know young kids with recurrent tumors and uh, no they've exhausted all their other treatment options and we've had some great examples where we can um, have our surgeon come in maybe a neurosurgeon on staff will do a biopsy of that tumor they'll send it over to the West Campus and. Uh, we have an infrastructure in place. This is by uh, Dr. Gannell and Dr. Lifton, really pioneered this approach in the genetics group here. They'll actually sequence the entire um, genome of those tumor specimens. Um, they'll then be able to, to analyze that data and then give us back information. And, and, and the information we get is specific uh, mutations and specific genes. And at this Monday meeting that we have, we're able to then say, well, you know, we've got the XYZ FDA-approved drugs that target these. There's no indication to treat for this particular tumor, but can we 
find a way to make this work. And we have regulatory experts. We have phase one trialists that attend that weekly meeting, like Pat LaRusso and Paul Eder. And, and, and they'll sit there and say, well, you know what? We can do this. We can make this happen. And they'll, they'll um, you know, work really late that night, and they'll get that personal exemption and get that um, single patient IND, as we call it, and get that drug for that patient, which is really, really exciting. So it sounds like patients are coming f- sort of from, you know, uh, locations not just within New Haven or even in the county. People are coming from far away. How do they how do they find out about these things? Is it the referring physician? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, you know, what's happened is, as we all know, is it's sort of the information age. And, and we, you know, with my phase one trial, as I mentioned earlier, where we, you know, are testing a drug from our lab, it's pretty remarkable. We get emails uh, from people uh, across the country that looked up our trial that, you know, saw one of my presentations at a national meeting that was posted online. Um, I have a Twitter account and people, you know, it's always great to hear people read them. And, uh, and I get calls and they say, well, we heard about this trial. Dr. Ranjit Bindra is Assistant Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Pathology. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archive programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. 